has worked in incredible ways um, from the very beginning. You, you go through redemptive history and you look at Scripture and you just find a God who is so powerful. He's all-powerful. A God who has a plan. A God who works to bring glory to his name. A God who, who makes for himself his own special people. A God who, who works and takes hearts of stone and makes them hearts of flesh. And he, a God who makes people who were dead in their sins and trespasses alive in Christ. He, he makes us who were covered in sins as white as snow. He takes us who couldn't do anything good and gives us the fruit of the Spirit to, to come forth out of our lives to accomplish his purposes. And we watch him all throughout history work in just incredible ways. This, this last week, I spent some time um, reading a, a sermon that, that was preached during the time which would be known in, in history as the, the Great Awakening. And there were this, this movement that, that took place primarily in, in, in the time of, of, of the 1700s. Um, even just a, a short period of time within the 1700s where, where God just did this radical work in the church. Specifically here in America, um, but also throughout large portions of, of Europe as well. There's a couple key people that, that the Lord used in just incredible ways during that time. And what one is Jonathan Edwards, um, like kind of the last of the, the great Puritans. And he, he preached sermons like sinners in the hands of an angry God. And, and the, the, the man had just an incredible mind as far as how he articulated things. But he, he would come up and... And he wouldn't want to be a dynamic speaker. He would just speak and read what it was that he had for a congregation. And it's recorded that in the time of, of in there in, in, in Connecticut, when he, when he preached a sermon, Sinners in the, in the Hands of an Angry God, that um, people, people just fainted in the midst of the sermon. People cried out, how how. Can I be saved? Um, the sermon was, was printed and became the most published sermon in the history of the world, with the exception of the ones that you find in Scripture. And the Lord used it in incredible ways to bring people to Christ. But there, there was another preacher in that time named George Whitfield. And, and George Whitfield also was someone who told it was, was not much to look at. He, he was cross-eyed. Um, so, someone who would get up there and, and, and likewise would, would preach, um, but had the ability just to articulate things and, and preach in such a way that, that it was just truth that was going forward, the gospel that was going forward. N- not ashamed of the gospel at all. Like Paul, he saw it as the power of God unto 
salvation to all who believed. And so he would just preach the gospel. He would preach in, in open air forums where we're told that, that there was times where he preached to 30,000 people at a time with no amplification at all. The Lord worked in, in, in this man's life in just incredible ways. Benjamin Franklin listened to, to Whitfield's sermons. And, and it was Franklin that, that printed all of Whitfield's sermons in the Gazette. Um, sent his sermons all over the country. Benjamin Franklin known to be a deist. Not sure exactly the effect that the sermons had on his life, but Whitfield and, and Franklin, Franklin just appreciated him so much that he wanted his sermons published, and so he just published them himself and sent them all over our country. Franklin said, after one of Whitfield's sermons, that it was wonderful that change was being made in, in the manners of all our inhabitants from being thoughtless or indifferent about religion. It seemed as if all the world were growing religious so that one could not walk through the town in an evening without hearing psalms sung in different families of every street. Here the, the, the gospel was going forward in, in such a way that people were being radically transformed. People coming to know Christ and this great awakening that was taking place specifically within the churches that ignited amongst the land. That God worked in just incredible ways. You couldn't walk down the street without hearing families singing psalms unto the Lord. And Brothers and sisters, we live in a time in our country in which the vast majority of our country would call themselves Christians. The number of people in our country who, who go to church is just, a, it's a gigantic percentage of people who go to church regularly. But even more so, those that would say, of course I'm a Christian. Of course I'm believe in Christ, who know facts that are about Christ and yet remain in a place of being dead in their sins. People that would sit in pews um, in the time of George Whitfield, I think we'd find it to be very similar today. We live in, in a time where So much of the church is asleep. So much of the church is indistinguishable from the world. That I pray, I, I, I pray for our country and for this world that there would be this great awakening that takes place by the same Holy Spirit that caused that to occur in the 1700s that would ignite just an incredible response to the gospel.
but specifically within the church. And as we think of how we should pray for our church, I, I want to begin by saying we, we need to pray for a great awakening within our church. We, we need to pray for a great awakening within our own lives. It, it is very possible for us to be in a church like this, to come and to sit week after week and think that we are okay, think that we are saved, and yet the knowledge that we have of God has not been a knowledge that has that is the result of, of, of true and living and genuine faith. Just as the demons believe and they tremble, there could be people who come through the doors of our church and listen every week and not be saved. It is also possible for there to be people who are here who are believers. And yet, the cares of this world have sucked them in so radically. Um, They would fit into that category as we see in Scripture where Jeremiah refers to them as they, they, they don't even know how to blush anymore. We've, we've come to a place of being lukewarm in our faith, asleep in the midst of it. And, and because we know something to be true, because we know what it is supposed to look like, we think as a result of knowing these things that we're actually doing these things. But in reality, if, if, if we were honest in if God were looking upon us, there is a level of worldliness that has crept in. Materialism, apathy, lack of desire to, to serve Christ and to glorify him. A lack of hatred for sin that would make it so that we're very much in need of a great awakening. George Whitfield preached a sermon called The Method of Grace coming from Jeremiah 6.14, where Jeremiah 6.14 says, They have healed also the herd of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. They're, they're there, and, and the people are saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. In their minds, they think everything is okay. But it's not. And so he goes from there to, to preach this sermon, and anybody can Download it from the internet. Encourage you to do it after the service, not during the service. <laughs> Although it would be fruitful for you to read it even now. But you look and, and he goes through and, and, and just begins to talk about people and within the church. He's speaking to this huge group of people in Scotland. And during this particular time, Scotland, I mean, they, they would have looked upon themselves as is we are the most Christian nation that there is. I mean, incredible theologians that had come out of Scotland at that particular time. But, but he goes through and, and just begins to, to preach to them. Saying, do you, do you see your, your sin? Like, do you, do you see, have you been made to feel, have you been made to weep over, made to 
bewail your actual transgressions against the law of God. And so he's talking with these people. Have you, do you weep over your actual transgressions, the sins in which you commit? And if, and if you've, and if, one evil thought, if one evil word, if one evil action deserves eternal damnation, how many hells, my friends, do every one of us deserve whose whole lives have been one continued rebellion against God? He says, was ever the remembrance of your sins grievous to you? Was the burden of your sins intolerable to your thoughts? Did you ever see that God's wrath might justly fall upon you on account of your actual transgressions against God? Were you ever in all your life sorry for your sins? Could you ever say my sins are gone over my head as a burden too heavy for me to bear? Did you ever experience such a thing as this? Did you ever in any such thing as this pass between God and your soul? If not, for Jesus Christ's sake, do not call yourselves Christians. And we, we live in a time in which you maybe have gone to churches in which sin was never even mentioned because it's, it's such that it's offensive to talk about sin. We, you maybe have grown up in churches in which there has been this self-esteem, psychobabble gospel that has been presented to you as far as just this happy slappy message that has been given to you that never ever talked about sin at all. And so he's talking with his people, have you ever wept over your sin? Have you ever realized the weight of your own actual transgressions, your own sin in which you have committed? And his point is, if you have never done that, then please don't call yourself Christians. It's absolutely critical that we see our sin, that we understand that we're sinners, that we understand that we are in desperate need of grace. We're in desperate need of the gospel, not only our actual transgressions, but the original sin in which we inherited from Adam. And we look at it and just see that not only have I sinned actually, but I was born with a sinful nature. I was born with such a nature that would cause me to have eternal damnation and being sent and set apart from God for all eternity because of the... sin in which I inherited from Adam. To be able to see that I'm a sinner. He goes on and he says, have you you ever seen that there's sin in the best of your duties and performances? Have you ever seen that? Have you ever seen that that not only do you have your actual transgressions, not only were you born with a sinful nature, but even your righteousness, even the best things that you could ever possibly do is covered in sin. He, he brings up Adam and Eve and, and how they hide themselves among the trees of the garden. They sew these fig leaves together to cover their nakedness. So the poor sinner, when awakened, flies, he says, flies to the duties and to his own performance to hide himself from God. And he goes to patch up a righteousness of his own. And so he says, I will be mighty good now. I will reform. I'll do all that I can. And certainly Jesus, will, Jesus Christ will have mercy on me. Do you see that your own righteousness is just like the fig leaves of Adam and Eve? And yet there's so many people that look and they say, okay, I think I've done enough. They, 
They know that they're sinners. They, they know that they were born with a sinful nature, but they look at their lives and they see themselves and they look at their righteousness and they say, okay, I, I think though that I have done enough. I think I'm okay. And his point is, don't call yourself a believer if you still think that your righteousness is okay. If you still think that the fig leaves are enough, don't call yourself a believer. He says, you must be brought to see that God may damn you for the best prayer you've ever put up. I mean, you could take your best prayer, and it is still such that it's covered in sin. I mean, apart from the Holy Spirit being resident in our hearts and changing our hearts and giving us affections for God and causing us to come to a place of seeing Him and knowing Him and being able to approach the throne boldly because we've been clothed with robes of righteousness, a man in and of himself in sin who still did in his sins and trespasses, your righteousness, the best prayer you ever could pray would be enough to condemn you. He says, you must be brought to see that all of your duties, all of your righteousness, as the prophet elegantly expresses it, put them all together and so far from recommending you to God are so far from being any motive and inducement to God to have mercy on your poor soul that he will see them to be filthy rags. And that's what God says, that our righteousness are filthy rags. And so not only do we see our actual transgressions, but we see our original sin, and we see that the best that we could have to offer to God is like filthy rags before him, that our righteousness is nothing apart from Christ giving us his righteousness. He says you have to be able to see that you had the sin of unbelief, that you were in a place of being an unbeliever, and there was a change that took place in which you now Believe your hope is in Christ. You must be able to lay hold upon the perfect righteousness, the all-sufficient righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. You must lay hold of faith on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and then you'll have peace. Our righteousness is nothing before him. We have to have his righteousness given to us. And so he goes through and just preaches this sermon Laying out so clearly the gospel, but calling upon the people to believe, to not be in a place of saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. And the Lord used that in just incredible ways to cause a great awakening within the church. And I pray for that. I, I pray that there would not be one person in our congregation right now that looks at themselves and says, like, okay, like, well, I haven't done that much, bad. I think my good is better than my bad. Or I don't think it's fair that God puts Adam's sin upon me. I mean, I, I don't even know him. Or my righteousness is pretty good. I think that I've done enough. Or I... I never had the sin of unbelief. I've always believed. Or I don't need the righteousness of Christ. But that there'd be such clarity that we would just see ourselves as in desperate need of forgiveness of our actual transgressions, our actual sins, our sinful nature that we inherited. We are in desperate need 
of having a righteousness that's foreign, that's imputed onto us, that's given to us by Christ because we have no righteousness of our own. Our righteousness would have to be repented of. We have nothing that we can offer him. It come to a place where our only hope is in the cross. Our only hope, our only hope that when we die, we get to spend eternity in heaven is not based upon our own works or our own deeds or the lack of sin that we think that we might have. But all of our hope is in the fact that we who were dead in sins and trespasses have been made alive in Christ. And it's by faith that we're saved. And that is by faith alone. It's by hope in the work of Christ upon the cross that he saved us. He took our sins. He gives us his righteousness. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He makes us alive. He makes us new creations. He makes our affections different. He is molding us and conforming us into his image. And there is this change that takes place that when it comes time to sing songs unto him, we sing with all of our hearts unto him. When we look at our lives and say, how ought we to live? We, we are radically different than the world because we have been changed. We want to be conformed to his image. We want our will to be in alignment with his will. We want to be people who serve the church. We want to be people who, who love God's people. We want to be people who love the lost and have a desire to proclaim the good news to people here and even to the uttermost parts of the world, if it's not us going, it's us sending. We want to be people who are in a place where we love our wives if we're married. We love our husbands. We love our kids, desire to raise them in the ways of the Lord. We want to forgive when forgiveness is hard to do. We want to run and flee from our sin. We, we hate our sin. We don't want it to have bondage over us. We hate it. We want to pursue righteousness. We, 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 we don't even want the things of the world, the sin, to be named among us because it's not fitting for us as believers who have been radically changed. And we want to be totally different because we have been saved by grace through the work of Christ upon the cross that it just changes us radically. Our prayers are different we're not trying to earn favor with him, but we just adore him and we love him. And we say, here's my life. It's yours, God. Do with it as you will. All of it is yours. And it just changes us to where we as a church, we as individuals are radically different because we have been awakened to see our sin and to see our salvation and to see the Lord our God. And we have such a view of him that... There is this incredible awakening that takes place that makes it so that we have this desire to share the good news of the gospel with grandma or with aunt or with uncle or with neighbor or with coworker or with someone that we meet upon the street. We want to proclaim the good news. We see the good news is the best thing that anybody could ever possibly hear. And we want to see people come to know Christ. We want to see it in such a way that it matters how we live. It matters the way that we are. And so we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and we find Paul writing to this particular church. And in light of this prayer that we have for our church, that there would be a great awakening, I want us to look specifically at our text here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. 
To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. We'll stop there for a moment. He begins this section, now thanks be to God. Paul's looking at his life and the life of those who are with him, the Christians. Thanks be to God. And that's where we'll be. I mean, if there is anything that comes out of our lives, if there is a great awakening that takes place in our hearts or a great awakening that takes place within our church, there will not be one of us, I pray, that ever says, we did it, we did it. Wow, we've radically changed. All of us will be in a place of thanks be to God he did this. Thanks be to God. Look at what God did. He took hearts that were asleep or he took hearts that were dead. He woke up Christians that were asleep or he took the unregenerate unbelievers and made them alive in Christ. They thought that they were okay, but they were not. And they were able to see, I've never, I've never wept over my sins. I've never even thought about my original sin. I've, I've, always saw my righteousness as good. I've never depended upon the righteousness of Christ and that God just radically saves you. And when God does that, we will say, now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. God gives us such great confidence in his sufficiency to lead us in triumph, to give us victory in Christ, to accomplish his perfect purposes purposes through through us individually and as a church. In this case, Paul's talking about a triumphal procession. Um, But here the the apostle Paul finds victory in that he was conquered as a servant of Christ. A view of God that just looks and says, I get to be this fragrance. But thanks be to God, he did this. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul is is praying and he says, this I pray. In verse 9, that your love may abound still more and more in all knowledge and discernment. That you may approve of the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Being filled with all the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now listen, he says, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. I want you to know the things that happened to me have turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. And so when we read this, now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. We look at it and we see this is actually the case. Here Paul is saying, I'm in prison. And just so you know, he's used this for the furtherance of the gospel. He says, There's, it's become evident to the whole palace guard. To the whole palace guard and and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Here he is at a place of things don't seem to be going right. It's not the way that he planned. He's in prison. It's difficult. And yet there he is in Caesar's prison. And, and, and there's the palace guard that would have been the nobility of, of the families, the, the, the kids that are 
of noble background are put into the palace guard and they're there and they're stuck with Paul all day or for several hours and Paul just preaches the gospel to him day after day, month after month, year after year is preaching to the palace guard and he's just sharing the gospel with these guys as they're sitting there chained and, and he's chained and they're there watching him and he just shares the gospel with them one after another. And you see later on in the book of Philippians, he says, all the, grains, all the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. They greet you. And so there's triumph. Even when it looks like it's not that way, he's in prison, but he's preaching the gospel and the gospel's going forward. Not only that, he says, and most of the brethren in the Lord, having become more confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. I'm in prison, but the brethren are being becoming more confident. It's, it's leading to the furtherance of the gospel. And so we come back to, to 2 Corinthians 2, and it says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. The fragrance. The Lord uses us to spread a fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Have you ever been in, a, in, in like a, a citrus orchard and you could just smell the citrus? Or in, in the forest and you could just smell the pine trees? The Lord, I pray that he would use us in such a way that we would be this fragrance that he uses to spread his knowledge in every place. That we wouldn't smell like the world smells but that we would live genuine, authentic, passionate Christian lives as the Lord works in us and awakens us towards us to where we're not like the world. We live in such a way that you can radically see a difference. We don't love the things that they love. We love the things of God. We desire to please him. We love the gospel. It's our hope. We don't respond to difficulties like the world does as those who have no hope, but there is a difference in us. I pray that the Lord would cause us to be a fragrance that spreads all around in every place of Christ that would bring incredible glory and honor to Christ wherever we go. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We're first the fragrance of Christ to God. It is God who finds us to be a sweet fragrance as Christ is in us, just as we're told in Ephesians that Christ loved us and gave himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Likewise, we who have been washed by the blood of Christ and forgiven of our sins and who have been made new creations in Christ and who walk in faith and who have no confidence in our own flesh and who preach Christ and Him crucified and who make disciples and who use our gifts the Lord has given us to proclaim the gospel and to encourage others in the gospel, we are to God the fragrance of Christ and God finds us to be a blessing as far as a fragrance that is first unto Him. And then he uses us to spread his knowledge in every place. It's through the proclamation of the gospel that we are a fragrance to Christ. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death. And to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. As we proclaim the gospel and live as Christians in this new covenant relationship with Christ, to unbelievers we continue, who continue in their unbelief, we are the aroma of death leading to death. We preach the gospel, and there's a response. They hear the gospel, and as they hear the gospel, it is a continuation where they hear it, and they hate it, and they want nothing to do with it, and it is the aroma of death leading to more death. But 
to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. To those who are being saved, the gospel goes forward and it is the aroma of life leading to life. And when we share the gospel and as we live our Christian lives, it's a sweet aroma to God and to those who are being saved. It's just incredible to look at. And you think there could be people who are here this morning who thought that they were okay. They came in here thinking my righteousness is enough or I don't have that many bad sins. And you've just been floored by the Holy Spirit to where you're here and you're hearing this and saying, I can have all my sins removed and I can have the righteousness of God placed upon my account. I can be seen as perfect in his sight. I can be made alive. I can spend eternity with him and it's not based upon my own works, but it's based upon faith in Christ and the work of Christ, what he accomplished, the finished work of Christ that he did for me upon the cross that I can know with certainty that I am saved because I'm given a righteousness that's not my own and my sins are all removed because Christ Jesus my Lord and my God became a man and he died on the cross and he rose again on the third day took all my sins upon himself and gave me his righteousness this great exchange that took place and I can spend eternity with him for anybody who is an unbeliever here and whom the Holy Spirit is working in your heart this morning this is the most incredible news it is aroma that comes to you bringing life to further life to eternal life that you'll spend with him. Just this weight that is taken off as God gives you the gospel. It's incredible. And we are to be that. We are to be an aroma that goes and proclaims the gospel unashamedly, clearly articulating this is the gospel. You are sinners. You're in desperate need of grace. We have no righteousness of our own, but we have a righteousness that's given to us by Christ, and he completed it all upon the cross, and it is only by faith in him that we're saved, and we bring that, and then we live that, and our lives are different, and we desire so much to be an aroma to all those that are around us that just proclaim Christ and the gospel constantly. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It's the power of God. John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, for the wrath of God abides on him. So who are sufficient for these things? Is it us? Who's sufficient for these things? Who's sufficient to live like this? Who's sufficient to be an aroma like this? And then he goes on and he says, For we are not as so many peddling the word of God. We're not like so many who, who are just hucksters. They go out there and just peddle the word of God for money. Peddle the word of God to, to, to have more friends or to be thought of as cool or whatever. We are not like those. We do not peddle the word of God. But... As of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Who's sufficient for these things? Those that look and say, no, this is what God says. How are we to be an aroma to those that are around us? We say, this is what the gospel says. This is what God says. Here is the gospel. Let me be clear on it. Let me proclaim it to you. It's the best news that you could ever hear. Do it with sincerity, not with hypocrisy. Have it be real. And your life is real and you desire to honor him. And you're not loving the things of this world, but you're loving the things of God. There is a difference in you because it's Christ in you. And we don't peddle the word of God, but with sincerity, we proclaim it. 
We speak it not from us. This is not my message. It's not your message. It is from God. This is what God says. Thus saith the Lord. You don't come here to hear me. You come here to hear this. This is what God says. We speak in the sight of God in Christ. Our audience, who we care about, what, what, what they care about, what we say is God. First and foremost, God. I, I could say things that would make me far more popular. But I care what he thinks. I care whether I'm rightly dividing God's word. And this is not a verse for just pastors alone. This is a verse for all of us. Do not peddle the word of God. But in sincerity, from God, speak in the sight of God in Christ. Speak through Christ working through you. The message of Christ, the message of the gospel, but do it before God. If you look to the next chapter in 2 Corinthians 3, it says this. We do not begin again to commend ourselves. Or do we need some other epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us written not with ink but by the spirit of a living God not on tablets of stone but on tablets of flesh that is of the heart and we have such trust through Christ towards God not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves but our sufficiency is from God who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant not of the letter but but of the spirit for the letter kills but the spirit Gives life. May we here be living epistles. May we here be such that we are living epistles. Not with ink, but in our hearts that have been radically changed. That have tasted that he is more to be treasured than anything of this world. May we be in a place of being awakened, a great awakening that takes place in our hearts, that if you are here this morning and you have been treasuring the things of this world and showing all those who are unbelievers that the things of the world are to be treasured more than the things of Christ, may we repent of such things and forsake them and turn to Christ and feast upon him and pursue righteousness and live for him and have boldness to proclaim the gospel because we love the gospel and we love Christ and we see ourselves as pilgrims here and we look and we say, I want to be such that I am an aroma that is strong, that is such that God is pleased with it and the gospel goes forward. And there's some who are going to not believe and it's going to be death leading to death. But there are those that are going to believe and it is going to be life leading to life and even to everlasting life. And may there be such an awakening that takes place in our church that that happens first in our own hearts and then amongst our families and then amongst our friends and to our neighbor into our land, into the uttermost parts of the world. May there be a change that takes place. We need to pray for that because you and I of ourselves are not able to do that. We are dependent upon the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts, to cause things to come into our minds this morning that say, I hate those things. Those are the things of this world. And I have 
been such that my fragrance has been so different than what it ought to be. I know whom I should trust and I know whom I should treasure and I know to whom my hope should be and it is all in Christ and I am different because I have been saved. May God do that in our hearts. George Whitfield finished every sermon from what I understand by saying this. Come, poor, lost, undone sinner. Come just as you are to Christ. And that would be our prayer for anybody who is here who is an unbeliever. And for all of us who need to be awakened to pursue Christ. Come, poor, lost, undone sinner. Come just as you are to Christ and he will work radically in your lives. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for the gift of your word and the gift of your Holy Spirit that could just radically transform us. Lord God, I I pray specifically for our church. Um, If there are people here who are yet to be believers, cause them to see their sin this morning. Cause them to see the worthlessness of their own righteousness. It caused them just to have their eyes open that they might pursue you and place all of their hope in you and trust in you for their salvation. God, please accomplish that. Don't let anybody leave this place. Yet an unbeliever. And if there are some here who are believers who have been asleep, indistinguishable from the world, Please wake us up. Please cause there to be an aroma that comes from us that is pleasing unto you, Lord. Please do that and accomplish that in our lives that that our lives might be full and that your glory may be displayed and that people come to know you and that we are an aroma that spreads the knowledge of God Everywhere we go, Lord, please do that in us. And may we just enjoy the fruit that comes from that as we get to be a part of your great redemptive plan in causing the gospel to go forward and bringing people to know you in the building up of the saints. Cause that to happen, Lord. We are totally, solely, completely dependent upon you to do that in our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.